You're listening to Comedy Central. February 7th, 2019. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Our guest tonight was the first black female journalist at the Washington Post, an amazing, fantastic woman, Dorothy Butler. Gilliam is joining us, everybody. Really amazing story. You want to stay tuned for that. Also on the show tonight, a fashion trend worse than socks with sandals, Rowan Jr. takes us black in time and why you should feel sorry for billionaires. But first, let's catch up on today's headlines. Build the wall. It's the favorite chant at President Trump's rallies, right after lock her up and extra dipping sauce. (laughs) But now, the Democratic governor from New Mexico is showing Trump what she thinks of his wall. The governor of New Mexico really doesn't like walls. Watch this. I'm Michelle Lujan Grisham, New Mexico's 49th in employment and 50th for schools. We gotta bust through some walls to make changes. public and private partnerships to rebuild our infrastructure. We need more apprenticeships and skills training. And we have billions in the permanent fund to invest in schools and small businesses. And here's what I think of Trump's wall. (laughs) Oh, man. You know what's crazy is none of those people were actors. They were just like, who is this lady? This is the greatest thing I've ever seen. I feel like that ad is just porn for the Kool-Aid man. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I wish more politicians would take their campaign slogans and make them completely literal. I love that. She'd be like, it's time for us to break the glass ceiling. Smash, ah, ah, we also need Medicare. Medicare for all, Medicare. (laughs) Moving on, in other news, it's February, which as anyone in Virginia can tell you is Blackface History Month. Today, Virginia had its third blackface scandal in a week. There's so much blackface in Virginia. I bet when you go to get your shoes shined, the kid asks you, what are we doing today, mister? The feet are the face. What are we going with? (laughs) This time it came out that when the state's Senate majority leader was editor of his school yearbook in 1968, he filled it with pages and pages of blackface photos, which is disgusting, all right? And also extremely confusing for any of the old alumni who are starting to lose their memories. Because if you're old and you're going through your yearbook and you're just like, oh, wow, I was so young and black back then, I... (laughs) And before you say, oh, of course this would happen in Virginia, just a bunch of ignorant rednecks, let me assure you, there is plenty of elegant high-end blackface going on as well. Luxury fashion brand Gucci stopped selling a sweater after criticism that it resembled blackface. It covered the lower half of the face and featured a red cutout around the mouth. Many on social media called the design offensive. Gucci pulled the sweater and apologized, saying it was a powerful learning moment and that it's committed to increasing diversity. Okay, what the Gucci? (laughs) Why would you make that? Like, even as a clothing item, what is... Why would you make that? And where would you even wear that? Skiing? I mean, I guess if you're skiing, no black people would see you, but still, it doesn't make it okay. (laughs) 
And you know what? I'm sick of companies saying this was a powerful learning moment for us because they never actually seem to learn. You know how they'll really learn? Is if these companies have to pay black people every time they do racist shit like this. That's what I propose. Every single time, they gotta pay black people out. At least that way, black people get something out of it, you know? Just guys in the street like, damn, man, you get a new car? Yeah, H&M did another monkey ad, man. <laughs> oh, shit, for real, I need to check my account. <laughs> oh, in other you really should have known better news, Delta Airlines and Diet Coke apparently decided that airlines need to be even more gross. USA Today reports Delta has apologized for Diet Coke napkins that it handed out to passengers. Why? Well, the napkins included a place for people to write down their phone numbers so they could pass it on to their, quote, plane crush. Because, as they say, you never know. Some passengers call those napkins creepy. Delta says it began removing them from planes last month. Coca-Cola has also apologized. Okay, okay, no, all right? <laughs> no one's trying to find the love of their life on a plane. All right, planes are uncomfortable. Everyone's in a bad mood. They're always shouting at me that it's illegal to be in the cockpit. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> it's a dumb idea, all right? I will say this, though. I do like the idea of special airplane napkins. And not for flirting, but just for passing around secret notes. Yeah, I think we could use that on a plane. I wanna pass a note to the guy with his shoes off and his nasty-ass toes in the aisle, all right? <laughs> the air is circulating, and now I'm breathing your toe smoke. <laughs> And I need another secret note for the asshole in front of me for reclining his seat when I'm trying to eat. And also the asshole behind me for kicking my seat when I'm reclining my seat because I'm trying to eat. <laughs> and another note for the douchebag who puts his carry-on above my seat. And then when the plane stops, he jumps up and then he's standing up next to me and it's like, wow, congrats, you stood up before everyone. We can't go anywhere. So now I'm trapped while you're getting your bag down and now you got your dick in my face the whole time. I'm just sitting there and you know, and now my dick is in your face. Have a napkin, mother I think the napkins are a great idea. All right, let's move on to our top story. The Democrats, now that they're running the House of Representatives, they finally have some real power, specifically the power to launch investigations, which they're using to go after the thing that Trump holds most dear. No, no, not his family. He doesn't even know who half those people are. <laughs> I'm talking about his money. Just one day after the president warned Congress about investigating him, House Democrats launched a probe into his business and personal finances. A Ways and Means subcommittee meeting today is building a case to request the president's tax returns, investigating potential business conflicts. It's called presidential harassment, and it's unfortunate, and it really does hurt our country. You laugh, but it's true, folks. <laughs> presidential harassment is a serious crisis that affects one out of every 320 million people in this country. <laughs> Look at this man. He's so shaken, he can't even speak correctly or dress himself in appropriately sized clothes. <laughs> you know one thing that makes Trump so successful is that he knows how to make himself seem like the victim when other people are just doing their jobs. Like, if the press reports on what he's doing, he's a victim of the fake news. If Congress investigates his conflicts of interest, it's presidential harassment. I bet if the cops were chasing Trump, he's the kind of guy who would try to call 911 on them. He'd be like, hello, I have an emergency. Some crazy guys are chasing me. Ever since I took the diamonds out of that store and it wasn't even open, I don't know what the big deal was. <laughs> so the Democrats are launching multiple investigations into Trump. And the thing he's most worried about them getting is his tax returns. See, President Trump doesn't want them knowing how much money he has or where the money has gone. 
And it turns out he isn't the only rich person having sleepless nights. Many real billionaires are also worried about the Democrats <laughs> coming after their taxes, too. Senator Elizabeth Warren wants a new tax on the richest Americans. She's calling it the ultra-millionaire tax. It would impose a 2% tax on Americans whose net worth exceeds 50 million bucks with an additional 1% levy on billionaires. And newly elected Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez proposed marginal tax rates as high as 70% to fund a climate change plan called the Green New Deal. A growing number of Americans, 76%, support making the super rich, I'm not talking about the average rich, the super rich, pay more in taxes. So, Elizabeth Warren and Ocasio-Cortez are coming for the super rich, which, by the way, Sounds like the most useless superhero ever. <laughs> Help me, super rich! That speeding bus is headed right for my kid! Don't worry, I'll buy you a new kid! <laughs> super rich buys the day! Now, a lot of people try and paint Elizabeth Warren and Ocasio-Cortez as these fringe socialists, but the truth is, 76% of Americans supporting the raising of taxes means it's not that fringe. That's a really impressive number, because usually the only thing 76% of Americans agree on is that extra guac should be free. <laughs> yeah, and it should be. Guacamole's a human right. <laughs> but it really shouldn't come as a surprise that people want to tax the super wealthy, especially since we've been hearing so much about how well they're doing. Around the world, billionaire wealth enjoyed its greatest ever increase in 2017. The total wealth of global billionaires grew to $8.9 trillion. Just 26 people now control as much wealth as half of the Earth's population. The three wealthiest people in the United States, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Warren Buffett, now own more wealth than the entire bottom half of the American population. Combined, a total of 163 million people, or 63 million households. Holy shit. Three dudes have as much money as the poorest 163 million people in America. Honestly, do, do we even have to tell them that we're taxing them? Like, because I don't even think they'd notice. <laughs> they'd just be like, yeah, just take it, just take it. And be like, well, what, what are you talking about? What taxes? What are you talking about? They wouldn't notice. It's like if you took one tattoo away from Adam Levine. He's never gonna know. <laughs> So, because most of the world's wealth is becoming more and more concentrated, most people are on board with raising taxes on the super-rich. Although, if you asked the super-rich, they've got a billion reasons why their taxes shouldn't go up. What do you uh, think of Senator Warren's idea of a, a tax on wealth? We shouldn't be embarrassed about our system. If you want to look at a system that's non-capitalistic, just take a look at what was perhaps the wealthiest country in the world, and today people are starving to death. It's called Venezuela. If the Democrats are proposing anything close to a 70% level of income tax, how many core Democrats are going to be supportive of a move towards socialism? Not very many. President Trump will get reelected. You don't have to be a genius to see what's happening here. These billionaires are fear-mongering, right? They're making it seem like there are only two options in life. Either they have low taxes or we starve to death in Trumpazuela. <laughs> and it's, it's bullshit, though. It is, right? There's a middle ground. These, like, this is the same logic that guys use to get their girlfriends to have sex. It's like, either we bone or my balls are gonna explode, okay? <laughs> it's called blue balls. It's really painful. <laughs> Why don't you just jack off? It's not the same. It is the same. Just let it out. <laughs> There's a middle ground. For more on this, we turn to a man with two calculator apps on his phone. Ronnie Chang, everybody! Thank you. Ronnie, 
someone who's deep in the finance, what do you think about this new drive to raise taxes on the rich? I'll be honest, Trevor, I used to support it, but then I became a crazy rich Asian. And now that <laughs> I've made some money, I realize there is no difference between passing taxes on the rich and 9-11. Both attack American values, and both were done by the federal government. I, I've, I've told you, don't bring your conspiracy theories to The Daily Show, I right? Keep them on YouTube. Anyway, I, I'm shocked, Ronnie, that you're against taxing the super rich. Why would you be against that? Okay, let me explain something to you, Trevor, okay? When you don't have money, you think small. You stop believing we need taxes to pay for better schools or roads or healthcare for a better society. But once you have money, you see the bigger picture, which is that flying in private jets is f***ing awesome, all right? <laughs> so let's quit hating successful people, Trevor. Not only should rich people pay less taxes, but billionaires should pay none. Whoa, no taxes for billionaires? Why would you say this, dude? You're not even a billionaire. No, you're not a billionaire, right? <laughs> but I will be as soon as my new product idea get, takes off, okay? Get this. It's a refrigerator that screams when it's empty. <laughs> Ronnie, that is a terrible idea. You're such a jealous bitch. All right, here's my point. America, these socialist haters are just trying to trap us, okay? They're gonna trick us into raising taxes on billionaires, but then once we all become billionaires, we'll be the ones getting screwed. Yeah, Ronnie, you see, that's the trap. Billionaires act like with enough hard work, anyone can become super rich, but the odds are insanely small. Like, there's only 3,000 billionaires in the entire world. Uh, correction, Trevor, it's gonna be 3,001 after my Shrieko freeze, 5,000 hits the market. The slogan is, I scream, you scream, we all scream when there's no ice cream. Ronnie Chang, everybody. Uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back to The Daily Show. It's February, Black History Month. And here at The Daily Show, we're celebrating all month with Roy Wood Jr., who's honoring the unsung heroes of black history in episodes of CP Time. Ah, welcome to CP Time, the only show that's for the culture. Today, we will be discussing the history of civil rights marches. They were how black people fought the system, made change. It's also how your granddaddy got his steps in. Now, there are the famous marches that we all know about. The March on Washington, Birmingham, and the March in Selma, which I was getting ready to attend until I found out that march was on a bridge. I don't do bridges well. I told Dr. King, if God wanted the black man to cross rivers, we would have been born with those little floaty things on our arm, like white people. <laughs> but there are many other marches in black history worth noting, such as the 1995 Million Man March in Washington, D.C. Now, some people say the crowd size didn't actually reach a million men. But if that's true, it's only because it was the 90s and all those parachute pants took up too much space. <laughs> But at least hundreds of thousands of men attended this march. They gathered to call attention to black issues like structural racism, unemployment, and most importantly, an end to the jerry curl. Or as I call it, the black mullet. That hairstyle has held more black men back than bad credit. The jerry curl is the only hairstyle that made black men look like Jewish mothers. Sadly, 
I did not attend the Million Man March. I tried to, but I misheard the location. You see, they said it was at the National Mall, but what I thought they said was the Nashville Mall. And let's just say all those white people in Tennessee were as confused as I was when I was protesting in front of an orange Julius. Now, you can't speak about marches without speaking about the big, bad, sexy, Afro-repping Black Panthers. Look at them. Anyone wearing leather in the summertime means business. In 1967, the Black Panthers protested against California gun control by marching to the Capitol with their grievances and some AK-47s. That's right, white people. I know you like to think that being out in public with the big gun was your idea, but that was some black shit first. And while bringing guns to a debate about gun control is not very logical, it is very effective. In fact, it gives you the upper hand in most situations. My Uncle Bebo once walked into a Chipotle and forgot he had a loaded pistol in his hand. He got free guacamole for life. Well done, Uncle Bebo. But before you criticize armed protests, remember, it was a different time and you had to be there, which I was not. I wanted to join the Black Panthers, but the day before the protest, my barber cut my afro too low and I ended up with a buzz fade. I couldn't join the Black Panthers looking that square. I look like a Wesley Snipes who does pay his taxes. And finally, I would be remiss if I did not mention the powerful black women who fought to unshackle the chains of oppression. One of those icons is Ida B. Wells, who famously took over a 1913 march for women's suffrage. The white women said that she had to march in the back, but Ida refused, telling those white ladies, either I go with you or not at all. Which is basically a turn of the century way of saying, I'm about to take my earrings off, heifer. <laughs> now, I didn't attend this march either because I was not yet born. But my grandmother, Regina Wood Jr., was able to go, but she didn't go. She said she was going with her best friend, Susan, but the two got lost on the way and somehow they ended up in the Caribbean where they've been living as roommates ever since. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I'm Roy Wood Jr. This has been CP Time. And remember, before the culture, must have been more than friends, I guess. They ain't got but one bed in their house. Roy Wood Jr., everybody. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Daily Show. My guest tonight is the first African-American female reporter, columnist, and editor for The Washington Post. Her new book is called Trailblazer, a journalist's fight to make the media look more like America. Please welcome Dorothy Butler-Gilliam, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. This is one of those stories that genuinely hit me so hard because it feels like you have lived through some of the most seminal moments in American history and you were also reporting on it. You, you worked for 50 years in this business. What do you think was the biggest change that you saw in your time in journalism as the first African-American woman working at the Washington Post? I think the biggest change was um, after the urban uprisings of the 60s, uh, when the 
Kerner Commission, which was a commission that was named by the president, said the media had in many ways contributed to the fact that the, that the urban riots occurred. And that was because wow. they had not integrated their reporting and the editing staffs. And in many ways they said they were just showing us America only through white eyes. So I started at the Post in 1961. When I went back in 1972, it was a little different because there were more reporters of color, right. more females, but still it was very white male dominated. You came into this world at a time when it was just something that did not happen. You walked into a newsroom where there were only two other reporters who were black. Mm -hmm. You were the first African-American woman in this space. Mm -hmm. And reading in the book, there's one of the, I mean, just the most harrowing passages where they, they, they had a policy of not reporting when black people were murdered. Mm -hmm. One editor even called those cheap deaths that shouldn't be reported. Yeah. How do you even begin to work in that kind of environment? And did you help the editors understand why it was crucial to report all news? I tried to help them. And I think the way I began working in that environment is because uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was beginning to say to young black people, go into white corporations and excel. So part, it felt wow. like it, I was almost part of the freedom movement uh, by going and becoming the first African-American woman at the Washington Post. I didn't think I was a trailblazer at that point. I just was doing a job that I loved. Right. I had had uh, four years in the black press, and the black press has been very important in America, uh, both in terms of reporting on civil rights, but in going, going places where white reporters wouldn't go, right. where white newspapers wouldn't go. So that uh, experience also helped to prepare me for my work at the Washington Post. Uh, one of the first stories that I remember a lot was when I went to the University of Mississippi uh, as part of the team from the Post to cover the integration of Ole Miss. And that was the most horrendous thing you can imagine because Mississippi was one of those places where uh, it was a lynching state. Right. Uh, it was the heart of segregation and the university was like this bastion of white supremacy. So it was uh, chaotic on the campus. But what uh, hurt in addition was that I had no place that I could get a room because they didn't have hotels for black people. So I slept in a black funeral home. And, uh, in a funeral home? Yeah. I slept with the dead, Trevor. This is so insane that you, you have lived through that time. It, I've, I, I'm honestly fascinated to know, in that time when this was happening, were you optimistic? Did you think that you would see America change? Or, or was the resistance to integration so strong that you thought it would last forever? The integration was so strong that I never thought I would see a black president. Wow. That was uh, a huge um, step forward right. in many ways. Uh, but of course, with America, it can have, be liberal and then it can swing to conservatism, and you see what we have now. I see what we have now. <laughs> I do indeed. <laughs> <laughs> you, you reported on, on, on so many stories, and your inclusion in the newsroom was powerful because it really fe felt like, when you read the book, you lived through two of 
really the most important eras in American history, in, in modern history, uh, definitely. And that was women's movement for equal rights and black people's movements for civil rights. Mm -hmm. Which of the two did you feel like had more momentum when you were in them? Did you feel like, oh, this is going to happen or this one won't? Or did it feel like both were just moving forward? Uh, it felt that the, like the Freedom Riders and the Freedom, I call the whole civil rights movement, the Freedom Movement. Yes. Uh, it felt like it was going to open doors for so many other people. Right. Because after the civil rights movement, after the Black Power era, that's when Gloria Steinem wrote her article that said, after black power, women power. Right. And so after the women power, it's, it's the blacks who were the pioneering minority. And so after women power, then you had the uh, oppression against gay people right. being, being uh, really looked at and, and studied and acknowledged. Then you had the uh, oppression against the disabled. So it's many ways, it's the black movement, I think that was the most important movement because all people all over the world were singing, we shall overcome. And you know, in right. China and all around the world, uh, people who had been oppressed were saying, if that happened in America, you know, why can't it happen here? It's so powerful when you, you speak about how when you first got to the Post, your mission was not to be a reporter that focused on black issues, but just a reporter who excelled. You didn't want to be pigeonholed mm -hmm. as a black reporter. But then you came to realize that it was crucial for you to take up that mantle and report on black issues. Why do you think it's so important for mainstream media to look more like actual America and not just have the voice of predominantly white men? Yeah, it's because uh, you can't really talk about a community uh, that you don't in some way represent, uh, that you don't in some way know, that you don't in some way have more than a stereotyped a notion mm -hmm. of what it's all about. And because uh, with white supremacy in America, that whole narrative has also been accompanied by an anti-black narrative. Right. And very often, and that's been since the beginning. This is 2019. We African-Americans or black people have been in America 400 years. We were here a year before the Mayflower. But, you know, Two and a half centuries of that was the era of slavery. Right. And then at the era of, of Jim Crow. So, uh, or segregation in yes, the South. Yes, yes. Yeah. So the whole feeling that um, this is, uh, this whole anti black narrative that has been a part of the DNA almost of right. America as much as white supremacy, uh, that has, has not really been acknowledged. Uh, it's been kind of glossed over, and you pay attention to how, you know, the, the violence that violence gets. Yes. But in terms of what motivated the, and a lot of it is about poverty. You know, poverty is very violent. And, and as you were saying in the segment with the billionaires, you know, it's very real mm -hmm. what's happening in this country. And it's been happening for a while. 50 years of writing, 50 years of finding ways to report stories even in spaces where you weren't allowed. I mean, one of the, the most shocking and I find funny at the same time stories is when you talked about how when you and yourself and colleagues would go to marches, you would have to disguise yourselves because you couldn't be journalists in public as black people. You would dress up as, as clergy, you dress up as priests and, and, and so forth and nuns and, 
and you would hide typewriters under your clothing, which I didn't even know how they fit. Um, <laughs> but, but, but when you look at America today, how do you find that balance for yourself of, of both where America has come from and where America still needs to go? Okay, first I should say that those reporters uh, who uh, wrapped their old royal typewriters about this in old clothes right. when they went to the South because they didn't want the white sheriffs to arrest them. Wow. And so they, they would also disguise themselves as ministers and they'd carry Bibles under their arms. And uh, so that was a way of trying to get to the story and knowing that they couldn't go as reporters. But where I see things today, uh, I think it's a time when uh, media is more important than ever. Uh, it, was, it was very difficult when the president uh, started talking about fake news. Mm -hmm. uh, it was very difficult because, you know, those of us who came up in the, in the legacy media, we knew about all of the issues of ethics that we had to, to uh, adhere to in mm -hmm. order to be hired by the Washington Post and in order to work there. Uh, we knew that we didn't take gifts from anybody. Uh, we knew that we had to always pay our own way. Um, uh, we knew that we had studied in colleges and universities. And so to have the, the, our whole process dismissed as fake news uh, was not only uh, detrimental to the U.S., but it was detrimental internationally because um, whatever we say about the faults of America, it still has been the bastion of democracy. And so when you have something as, as crucial, you know, as freedom of the press right. being de denigrated by the top official of the land, it has a very destabilizing effect uh, in the whole world. I could genuinely talk to you for hours, but luckily I have the book to keep me company. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show. It's an Thank honor you meeting so you. Much. Thank you so much. Trailblazer is available now. A truly fascinating story. Dorothy Butler-Gilliam, everybody. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.